when government gets too big and too full of itself, and when governors get too big and too full of themselves, it erodes the coercion of communities. It inhibits people getting to really know one another. It inhibits the real progress of society. Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. Reverend Robert A. Sirico, President Emeritus of the Acton Institute, gave his plenary address during Acton University 2017. He spoke on the importance of virtue in society and that the most influential institution in any society is the family. If we truly believe in human flourishing, then change starts at home and in our local communities. That is how we gradually transform the world. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you could help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. My name is Chris Brooks. I am a pastor in Detroit and a purveyor of the ideas here at Acton. I've been given the task of introducing Father Robert Sirico. Now, you know, there's a number of ways you can introduce someone. You can give the basic biographical details of their life, but you know those details concerning uh, Reverend Sirico. You know he is the president and co-founder of the Acton Institute, that he's a graduate of USC, that he also is a graduate of Catholic University of America, that he has two honorary doctorate degrees. So why bore you with those details? I can also talk about the character of the man, that he is as kind as he is thoughtful, that he has a true pastoral heart and a unique ability to genuinely see the humanity in every person that he meets and the opportunity of every community that he visits, no matter how beautiful or broken. But I won't take that approach either. The approach I'm going to take tonight is to simply tell you how Father Robert Sirico ruined my life. The year was 2010, and I had just completed my degree and uh, master's degree in Christian apologetics and philosophy. And you know, there's something uh, uh, dangerous about minting someone with a degree that certifies them as a master in anything. The silent killer of pride begins to seep in, and such was the case for me in 2010. But God had a plan to cure the dangerous uh, affliction of pride that I had been infected with, with a heavy dose of humility administered by Father Robert Sirico through his teachings. I remember being invited to an acting event much like this and sitting in the back of a, uh, a pretty large auditorium, not knowing what to expect. But I remember also becoming undone as Father Sirico, through his wonderful tool of storytelling, shared his personal journey from being a Marxist agnostic socialist to rediscovering his faith in Christ and the moral virtues of the free market. And I sat in the back as a freshly minted certified master and Christian worldview educator thinking to myself, 
that I've been teaching Christian worldview, but my own Christian worldview had not been impacted in the areas of public policy, economics, and government. And the quote that kept running through my mind is Socrates' quote, you know the famous quote, I know that I know nothing now, as he talked. There were three concepts that he introduced that night that revolutionized my life. The first was the fact that the Christian worldview was exactly that, a worldview. That it has something to say about every aspect of life and that it provided sufficient answers to the big questions of our lives. And for me, that was significant. The second idea that he shared akin to it was that scripture had much to say about the values that must be present in order for us to experience a free and virtuous and flourishing society. And that scripture was very much concerned about the role of government and economics and public policy and its relationship to a correct anthropology. And there were some dots that were connected that night that caused me to feel like I was experiencing uh, being born again all over again. And then there was a third idea that was probably the most revolutionary of them all for me, a son of Detroit, And that is that you don't need socialism in order to have justice. That free markets in and of themselves, if used rightly, are a powerful tool for bringing justice, human freedom, and human flourishing. Father Sirico not only caused me to become undone that night, but he has absolutely no idea how much trouble he got me into as I took these ideas back to my beautiful Detroit. All the wonderful conversations that I had with pastor friends who have been trained in the school of liberation theology. And those conversations continue to be uh, enjoyed to this moment. I wish I could have took a picture for Father Sirico of my mother's eyes when I told her that I did not support uh, the popular minimum wage policies that were sweeping through our city. And I thought my grandmother was going to pass out when she discovered that I wasn't feeling the burn last year. (laughs) All because of Father Robert Sirico. But without uh, dispute, I am a much better leader and thinker in my community than I ever would have been if I had not been introduced to Father Sirico or the wonderful ideas of, uh, of the Acton Institute. And I've committed myself to not just being a purveyor of these ideas. I'm not here tonight because, of, uh, because I'm a philosopher. I'm here today because I'm a, I'm a practitioner. And uh, my commitment is to uh, prove on the ground that these ideas are not just true, but they work. So my hope and prayer for you tonight is that Father Sirico would ruin your life like he ruined mine, and that somehow you will be the better for it, because I know that I am. Before I invite him up, uh, I would like to sufficiently embarrass him for just a moment. You heard that it was his birthday. Can, can you join me in singing happy birthday to Father Sirico? Let's go together. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Father Sirico. Happy birthday to you. Please help me join. The number is 66. <laughs> you know, and they, 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 people say um, 33 is the perfect age. 
So I don't know what that makes me. But I was sitting between two guys who were my equal when you combine their years. <laughs> so uh, thank you, Pastor Brooks. I, I admire the work you've done uh, and the work you will do in the future. And I'm so glad to finally meet your beautiful wife. Uh, it's also Peter Johnson's birthday. See, I'm not alone. And by the way, and I always have, I always joke with him about it. Today is Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's birthday as well. And um, our argument has gone on for years. He said, well, yeah, but I'm, I'm younger than you. And I said, no, you're not, and you never will be. <laughs> so uh, we heard uh, Dr. Brooks talk about Detroit. Um, Any time a kid from Brooklyn can make life miserable for somebody from Detroit, <laughs> we take that opportunity. And I don't know if in Detroit, you, do you play stickball in Detroit? No. All the worst. I knew Detroit was going down. If you're not playing stickball in Detroit, they're still playing stickball in Brooklyn. Let me tell you about stickball because it's, it's wonderful. And as I was, I've told this story, I've written about it in the book, I've told the story. I thought, well, maybe I'll get some new inspiration. Uh, having not done any research, any formal research on stickball, just relating my own experience and memories of it, I went on uh, YouTube to look up stickball. And I watched a whole bunch of these YouTube videos. And what was hysterical is that these people tell the same story, make the same observations about the reality of stickball that I had. Now, stickball is kind of baseball designed for narrow New York streets. And, uh, and I, I've told this story so many times, I use the same kind of expressions and stuff. I said, home plate is this manhole cover. And this guy in the video says the same thing. And then he says, and then there's that car down there that's uh, first plate. That, that was my family's Rambler. And then the other manhole cover. And then the Deering's station wagon. The Deering's were Irish Catholics. They needed a station wagon. <laughs> And then you, you play it with a stick, like a mop handler, and, uh, and a little spalding, you know, little ball about the size of a tennis ball. And you bounce it once. Or you could do it yourself, too, and hit it. And then you'd play the way. Now, what this did was create pandemonium on the street. And, you, and you'd get interrupted because somebody come down the street, driving down the street, so you have to go on the sidewalk again and then start all over again. And what was interesting is that we, we knew the rules. We all had our rules. And from what I learned from the, the video is that there were different rules in different neighborhoods. And, uh, but in our neighborhood, as we would play this and we'd get rambunctious and there'd be, you know, some pretty direct language. In fact, um, they were exegeting this uh, in this video and they were talking about 
uh, people talk and smack with one another. You know, just the, the whole idea of intimidating the, the team you're playing against. And we used to do that all the time. You know, you'd call them names, or you'd tell them they're stupid, or look, he, he's, he's pitching like a girl, and you know, just, just throw them off base. And there's this little, I think it was a 14-year-old kid doing that with these, these guys who had come in the neighborhood to play. And so we're doing all this in, on our street in Brooklyn, and presiding over the whole thing was this nosy little Jewish lady who used to sit out on her stoop. Uh, and her name was Mrs. Rabinowitz. A stoop is a porch, you know, kind of like the stairs where she'd just sit and she'd sit there and she'd just kind of watch as we were playing. And then, of course, it would pick up and the language would pick up and everybody would get a little rambunctious. And finally, my mother used to call Mrs. Rabinowitz the mayor of the neighborhood and because uh, she just was, you know, checking out who's coming in the neighborhood, who's here. And then when we get a little too much, she would just yell out one of our names and all of us, you know, these are 12 boys playing with the girls watching around the periphery. Sorry, this was before the invention of feminism. <laughs> and... Uh, and she'd just call out one of our names, and it would bring order to the chaos. And I've reflected on that story over and over again, because I think it really tells us something about social organization. We, we didn't, there was no rule book. I never saw any list. I'm sure now there's probably a book of stickball rules. But from the best I can gather, this has started about the, the turn of the century in New York. And the rules were passed just from neighborhood to neighborhood and maybe um, tweaked for particularities of any given neighborhood. And uh, the one guy on the video said, uh, the, the, what was it, the, the Italians would come into the black neighborhood or the blacks would come into the Italian neighborhood to play, but they had to get out before sundown. You know, it's really interesting to see the kind of relationships that were built in the midst of a society that was not as conscious or as sensitive to, uh, you know, racial justice or equality and all of those things that are so important. But nonetheless, people got to know each other. And as I say, the language that was used, it was a poor man's game. You know, the, the rich kids could go to Yankee Stadium or Ebbets Field. But we were just in the neighborhood because we just occupy a summer's day. And there was no gloves. There were no formal rules, as I say. There was all the trash talk. And yet Mrs. Schneider, Mrs. Rabinowitz, could call order out of that chaos. And the important thing, and the reason I'm telling you this story tonight is because we've, we've spent four days hearing abstract theories, listening to erudite references to great thinkers. And tonight is not going to be an academic talk, but a, a talk that tries to make a synthesis of it all, tries to bring it all together. And the lesson of that stickball game was the cohesion of a very diverse society and the way in which it was governed by a nosy Jewish lady who knew our parents. You couldn't bring order to 12 kids on that block today. 
without calling in squad cars. Just this lady had the power of governance without government. And that is a very important truth that we've been trying to meditate on in a thousand different ways in the course of Acton University. It is not the case that we don't care about solidarity. It is not the case that those of us who advocate a free society don't care about justice or the vulnerable. It's not the case that we don't believe in rightly ordered government, limited as it must be. It's not the case that we don't believe in cohesion in society and harmony in society. It is the case that we don't think that all of those important virtues and practicalities are the first resource of central government. And that when government gets too big and too full of itself, and when governors get too big and too full of themselves, it erodes the coercion of communities. It inhibits people getting to really know one another. It inhibits the real progress of society. The generally agreed upon rules of stickball came out of common sense and a sense of spontaneous order because we shared certain values and had a lot of disagreements too. And isn't that just like society? Isn't that the reality of society? That people are different. Those differences can lead to violence. They can lead to antagonism. They can lead to all kinds of nefarious things that destroy lives. But those differences can also enhance. They can also promote progress. They can also inform. They can also delight. And the question of how you make those distinctions has very much to do with whether people are in relationship to one another freely, whether they're relating based on a set of common values, even if not all of the values are shared the same, where people respect one another at least for their ability to play stickball and not for their taste in clothing or in food or in religion. And that that gets people closer together. Not the imposition of regulations by people who don't know you very well. It's the distinction, I think I mentioned it last year, but an important distinction that I want everyone to leave Acton University mindful of between authority and power. We need governance, we need constraint in society. And the sociologist, sociologist Robert Nesbitt makes this distinction between authority and power both being forms of constraint. Power is a form of constraint that's external. It doesn't depend on whether you like it or not or whether you agree with it or not. It's government. It's police. It will conform your behavior based on the constraint that's available from outside you. But authority is also a form of constraint. But this is an interior, an internal form of constraint. It's where people share a belief in the justice 
or the rightness or the commitment of the person who exercises that authority over them. It happens in the home. It happens in tradition and mores. It happens in forms of etiquette that you conform your behavior based on certain cultural values or religious values or family traditions. And I ask you in society, what have been in your life the things that have had the most dramatic impact upon you, that have formed your life, that have constrained your behavior? Just think for a moment of an incident or two where you wanted to do something and didn't do it. Was it because you read a piece of legislation that told you you may not do this or that? Or was it because your father modeled a certain set of values in terms of how he treated your mom? Was it a neighbor who modeled a work ethic that you chose to emulate? A work ethic that maybe you didn't feel like doing at the time, but you did it because you knew it was the right thing to do and you knew it would be better for you to do it. I suggest that the most effective form of governance is those, are those institutions that may not be formal and are not legislative and are not coercive and are not external but our interior values that we hold to because somehow we've become convinced that these things are good and true and promote peace. And sometimes they promote a peace that, you know, you go to the wedding because you have family obligations to go and not because you particularly like the people who are getting married, right? <laughs> I mean, we all do that all the time. I imagine that many of the people who, who served us so well tonight have served other meals today and are tired tonight. And they have things of greater importance and maybe even things pressing on them, things that are going on in their homes. And that we're not the center of their lives, and yet they served us. They served us voluntarily, and maybe in some cases begrudgingly. But they did it because of an interior sense of the right to do it. And sometimes those things fray at the edges, I know. But social coercion comes about by more than government. And that's the point. That government ought not to be and need not be the resource of first resort, either for social coordination, social cohesion, much less for the prosperity and the benefit of people who are vulnerable. There are scholars here, and I'm reluctant to quote Alexis de Tocqueville when I'm aware that there are people in the room who've written books on Tocqueville. <laughs> But there's a, a quotation from Tocqueville that really kind of sums this up. He said, Depotism may govern with, without faith, but liberty cannot. And then he asked this question, how is it possible 
that society should escape destruction if the moral tie is not strengthened as the political tie is relaxed. Whew. Just in that one question, the strengthening of the moral tie and the relaxing of the political tie. Think of what that means. That the things that most closely bind us are shared values and morals. And you know, as I read this question, the reverse of it can be equally true. How is it possible that society should escape destruction if the political tie is strengthened and the moral tie is relaxed? And isn't that ripped from the headlines of the newspapers today? That what is happening in our society is precisely the relaxation of moral ties as the result of the strengthening of political ties, of governmental ties. That now in our school systems you can't give a copy of the Bible to a kid with their parents' permission, but you can give condoms and birth control to children without their parents' knowledge. Isn't there something desperately wrong with a society that replaces morality with government? Again, this is not to say that government ought not to exist and is not right in its function of ensuring justice, of protecting the vulnerable from coercion from others, protecting people from violence, or to have court systems that adjudicate differences peacefully. But we are moving rapidly towards societies that see an easy solution, or what they think is an easy solution, in increasing the political tie. My friends, we are living in the midst of moral chaos that soon descends into social chaos. When we accept the paradigm of class division over class harmony, then we're accepting a very, very dangerous proposition. Now, I received an email yesterday from a family. Uh, they had been to Acton University last year and um, they couldn't come this year. They wrote me from Caracas, from Venezuela. This is a, a beautiful couple with a family. You know, over the years, over the, what is it, 12 years of Acton University, there have been about 100 Venezuelans who have attended our sessions have participated that are your fellow alumni. I'm told that as a result of that, that the leadership of the youth movement that is in many ways leading the resistance to the socialist regime uh, in Venezuela, FORMA is the name of the group, 
that a lot of those students who were sitting next to you at previous Acton universities are leading the resistance to that, that they have been formed with ideas and they simply seek to have freedom. Andrea and Jorge Capillo, Capillo uh, were here last year and wrote and said that they couldn't be here and that they wanted us to pray for the people in Venezuela. We have with us tonight six Venezuelans who are here very concerned for their country and very concerned for its future. They have come here because they know that they have to be prepared to be the leadership to build a new Venezuela. I want to show you some photos uh, that were sent to me by this family. And some of the photos you will see, you may have seen them uh, on news reports, some of them, uh, and some of them are disturbing. But let us take a minute and a half to observe the photos that were just sent to me, I think, yesterday and say a little prayer as you see them. My friends, you are the formators of your societies. The most influential institutions that exist in any society are families, our mothers and fathers who help to interiorize values in their children. There are churches and our social service institutions that serve the poor and preach the gospel. These are the institutions that are closest and act as neighbors to people in need because they understand what the real needs are and don't assume they know how to reprimand, and they know how to embrace. Not only can the state not do this, not only can the bureaucratic mentality not replace parents and grandparents in the home, but a state that is too big and too pervasive corrodes the values that the more subsidiary institutions can naturally build. You are the formators of the change. You know how to bring together people. The reason the Acton Institute has existed for 27 years now has been precisely to help men and women like you, future leaders and leaders now, to form societies not predicated on class division, but as I said last night, on class encounter. Societies that promote an understanding of business as a vital institution in any society if we're going to talk about helping people. If we're going to talk about feeding the poor, you have to have bakeries and butcher shops. If we're going to talk about clothing the naked, then you're going to have to have textile factories and shops where people can buy them and shoes that they can wear. The government can only imitate that. The government can only redistribute 
And pretty soon, once you're in the business of just redistributing, without enhancing and augmenting productivity, you have the great myth that Friedrich Bastiat spoke about, the myth whereby everyone thinks that they can live at everyone else's expense. You can picture it as a circle of people, each of them with their hand in the other person's pocket, putting their hand in their back pocket, only to have the person in back of them take the money out, put it in their back pocket, and have it taken all around the circle so that it becomes a vicious circle, a non-productive circle, a destructive circle. This is why your role is so vital and why the role of business is so vital. Because if our businesses can be built by men and women formed with these kinds of ideas, that is to say, if these businesses can become centers not only of enterprise, though certainly that, but also cultural centers of virtue and the promotion of virtue and the tutoring of the work ethic and a, a philosophy and an ethic of service. If we can build businesses, if we have the freedom to build businesses like that, along with the other moral institutions of society that I've already alluded to, then we can vanquish the kind of stuff that socialism produces and is producing now on the streets of Venezuela. You and I can build societies like that. Let those images burn in your mind and commit yourself in the face of it to building a society that is worthy of the human person, made in the image and the likeness of Almighty God, people with a destiny beyond this world, Will there be faults in such a society? Will there be flaws? Will there be vices? Yes. There will be as many vices as people in their freely acting will display because that's all that the free society, that's all that the free market is. It's just people interacting with each other on the basis of the principle of voluntarism. But what comes from that voluntarism is culture and society productivity, charity, and authentic solidarity. You are the future. You have the opportunity to do this. Please take what you have learned here. Bring it to your communities, to your countries. Lord Acton said that liberty is the delicate fruit of a mature civilization. Take that delicate fruit, handle it well, handle it wisely, and be generous in sharing that with the people with whom you have influence. Thank you very much. Father Robert, what are three practical things that each of us should do with the things we learned this week at Acton University? Okay, first, 
what I want to do is answer a question from last year. And it wasn't asked because Paul saw it and thought, this is my first year and this is a tough question. And I don't want to embarrass the guy who signs my paycheck. But it was the first question, as I recall, right? It was very the highest ranked. Highest ranked question. Uh, Paul has gotten to know me a lot better. <laughs> and I want to address the question because it may be a question. I don't know. Is there a similar question on that? Um, not yet, but they're okay, still pouring Okay, in. well, let me, let me preempt it. It was a question that said, well, I, I don't remember the exact wording of it, but it was a question that said something to the effect of, how is it that the Acton Institute is not a tool of corporations, a tool of business people? The, the money that you get come from corporations and uh, something, you know, I've, I've heard it in various forms. In fact, last year I was asked it by Senator Boxer of unhappy memory Uh, I say that because she's no longer in Congress or uh, Senate. Uh, I went to testify and she, she said, is it true that the Acton Institute has gotten X amount of money from Exxon Corporation? And I said, no, it's not true. Uh, we got uh, more than the amount that you had. In fact, I have the number here. <laughs> and she said, and what about the Koch Foundation? I said, oh yeah, uh, no, your number is wrong there too. And I went down, and, uh, and, and she said, well, that, that's outrageous. I said, well, I think it is too, because here we're defending the principles of capitalism, and over the 27 years of the life of the Acton Institute, we have less than one half of 1% of our money that has come from corporations. It is outrageous that we are doing this, and they're not giving us more money. <laughs> What I'm simply saying is that we have a set of ideas that we believe in, and we teach those ideas. And some people agree with them, and they, they donate to us. I mean, just think about it. You've enjoyed this week, and some of you have received scholarships to attend this week, because somewhere, somebody donated money that they could have spent on themselves to make this possible, because they agree with our ideas. So I, I don't have any shame in accepting donations from people who share our ideas. What I can promise you and tell you, and anybody who knows me well enough to know, is that I, I will not be bought. <laughs> that I'm not, you know, I mean, Soros could come here and give me multiple more, multiples more than Coke, and I wouldn't be preaching socialism. Believe me, been there, did that, have the tie-dyed T-shirt, you know. <laughs> So I just wanted to address that question, that, that we're honest brokers. We're not here, I think you, you've seen that, you've been here four days now. We're not here to brainwash anybody, but we're here to have a vigorous debate and dialogue, like we did last night, like you've all had in all of your seminars. So that's, that's really what we're about, and, and I'm grateful to our donors and amazed uh, at their generosity. Now. Three practical things. For Let me add to that, yes. because one's coming in quickly, too, uh, to the top. Uh, can you tell one really great story of someone who's, who was impacted by AU and took some practical action? So maybe mix that in with the, the three things we can. <laughs> Dr. Brooks would be one. I mean, you, it, it, uh, 
Can I hear a word of testimony? I mean, you, you're in the audience. You know, uh, Ishmael Hernandez came to us. How many years ago, Ishmael? I don't know where you are. How many years ago did you come to AU? Or to, it probably was a FAVS, huh? 22 years ago. <laughs> that was a lot less gray in this head. Or Chris, you know, Chris Mowren's gray because of by being asked questions and giving answers like this. No, Ishmael has built a whole institute in Florida, uh, even though we tried to recruit him to Michigan, but his wife would hear none of it about snow, not into snow. Uh, I don't know if Father Roger Landry is still here. Um, and Father, I don't mean to embarrass you if you are, but Father Roger came to us right after he had graduated from Harvard and was going to go into seminary uh, and attended, uh, I think it was our third Tour de Free and Virtuous Society. This is the early 90s, 92, 93. And um, knew him all through seminary and went on to, is now serving uh, as a diplomat for the Vatican to the United Nations for his penance. Uh, <laughs> There, that, that's uh, another fellow. Um, I, I could go on and give things like that. So here's what I'm saying. It's not so much that you take good notes and you take these, you know, ideas about supply side uh, or, or uh, uh, supply and demand or praxology or the history of... Uh, natural law thought, and then you're going to build a curriculum with it, or you're going to, you may do that. You may teach in a class. It may inform your homilies or an archerite. What's more important is that you absorb these ideas whole. It's, it's what I try and emphasize in um, our school, our little Catholic school uh, a mile away from here, is that we're not just dropping data points in these kids' heads. What we're trying to do there is form a culture. And here, it's more difficult to do in the sense that we don't have an encounter every day of the week and you don't have parents at home drilling it into your head. But to form an intellectual culture, a philosophical culture, a culture that replaces this addictive mentality that when we need something done, we go to our politicians to do it. To, to create a culture of freedom, uh, Fused with a sense of virtue and a, and a commitment to the, the, the true, the good, and the beautiful. Uh, and then your excellence in your respective fields, and that may be social work, that may be philosophy, that may be running a business, it may be teaching in, in a school. Whatever it happens to be in your scholarship or in your practical life or in your raising your kids, that you bring this philosophy, this idea that liberty is not the end of man. It's only the political end of man. But that's pretty good and pretty important because it stops the kind of violence that you see in societies that promote the doctrine of class warfare. So uh, I suppose we could come up with three practical things. I mean, write about it tweet about it, uh, preach about it, uh, write a book about it, 
Build an organization based on these principles. Don't, you know, one of the things I hope is don't be intimidated by people who aren't going to agree with your ideas. Be confident in the ideas. And if you're not quite confident yet because you don't understand it, read more. Come back to Acton University. Uh, take all of this uh, information that we've placed at your disposal. Obviously, uh, Pastor Brooks was not intimidated by the people he, even a grandmother in Detroit, that's something to be intimidated by. That's, a, that's your version of Mrs. Rabinowitz, right? Uh, and, and just explain it. And we're only interested in the truth here. If I could add, Father, that's another reason for the Alumni Association. Yes. Career opportunities, jobs that you can learn about, be recommended by your peers, your fellow alumni, and the resources, the ideas. One of the things we want is the ideas that people can... Well, what, what we want through the uh, Alumni Association, I, I, I like to call it a headhunter uh, position, is that we want to know who our alumni are. And by alumni, we're very broad and general in that. There are other people you, know, you can bring into that who share our ideas. And then we want to know the positions of, the, um, uh, of all the institutions, whether it's ecclesial or journalistic or uh, philanthropic foundations or businesses, whatever, and deploy people who share these values into positions of influence and uh, in society that will form others. Because if we can do that, we amplify the effect of what we have here. I mean, imagine what happens over time when people who share our ideas then become the next Billy Graham or who become the next Oprah Winfrey, uh, who become, you know, uh, whatever, uh, the, the next Bill Gates. I told my kids in school, I said, one of you? could be the next Bill Gates. You could be sitting next to the next, the next Bill Gates. I said, and when you become that Bill Gates, I'm going to show up on your doorstep and ask you to build me a school here. <laughs> so I mean, this is what can happen here. I mean, ideas are life transforming. It happened to me. I wouldn't be sitting here now if somebody didn't give me books to read. Now, I had to do the work with it. You got to do the work with it. But that's why we started this alumni association with great intentionality, in order to enhance your work and your future. Not because we we just want to, you know, uh, say we knew him when, but because we want you to take these ideas and deploy them. Scandinavia consistently ranks as one of the best places to live, has the best education, and these are secure countries. They are socialist, democratic nations. How do you explain that? Oil off the coast. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think when, when you have uh, socialism that can just have a, a blank check that can draw from a lot of these uh, resources that they have, they don't have to be as concerned. Um, uh, about economic productivity. And even in the face of that, of course, you, you're dealing with Scandinavian countries, so each of them uh, are, are different. I was thinking there of Norway and, um, what is it, Sweden. Uh, but I, also those societies, even with that kind of resource to draw from, have been changing 
you know, if you've been reading about what's going on, the, the number of very good articles and, and research papers that have been done within the last year or so uh, that, that show that, that a number of those assumptions of the socialist societies um, uh, are, are modifying and changing because it doesn't work. Let's also remember that from a uh, that a lot of those Scandinavian societies. Again, we have to. They also have uh, some of them have the highest suicide rates. Now that may be due to the weather, or the lutefisk. I'm I'm not sure. Uh, I say that as a you know Southern Italian, so uh, food is very important. Um, but there are also societies where the state basically. Uh, operates the church, or where they have the the, the church, uh, uh, the national church, and so their societies, in terms of their religious beliefs, um, I'm not so sure that they're the happiest societies either. I, I'd like to see those statistics, but uh, also um, in some of those countries, marriage is about gone, and and this becomes very confusing. And I, I hate to think over time. You know, when, when they started um, the national health care system in England, you know, everybody loved it until it began to use up all of the resources. Eventually, when the resources are used up, then societies, um, you know, don't function anymore. You have to be generally uh, productive in some way. So. And isn't it hard to compare those very homogeneous societies to others? Well, that's, that's another part of it, too. Uh, they, they are so similar. It's kind of like, you know, I, there's a part of um, uh, some of the um, ethnic uh, churches that I admire because it's, you know, it's, it's all the same. When I went to Calvin College for the first time, to give a lecture, I looked across the room. I said, "Do you do you all know you're blonde?" <laughs> kind of joking with them. In the in at least in Brooklyn, where I grew up, uh, it was here comes everybody, as James Joyce said. You know, it's it's the mix of everybody. When you have the cohesion, it's easier to function, uh, and that may have something to do with it. Uh, but um, when their birth rates decline and the immigration becomes more pressing in order to support their aging populace, it, it can be very um, telling and, and very dangerous for the future. Here's a question related. What's the difference between socialism in Venezuela and Scandinavia? Um, I, think, I think the socialism in uh, Venezuela is far more, of course, you know, it's Latin America, so there's this Latin American strongman mentality that has existed there for, for a very long time. And by strongman, it doesn't just need to be Chavez or Maduro or Castro. Uh, in the succeeding generations, it becomes the Politburo or the, the party. Uh, I don't think they have that, that kind of mentality in... Um, in Scandinavia, from what I can see. I, I don't think they take the Marxism quite as seriously uh, in Scandinavia as they do in Venezuela or in Cuba. And the socialism of a coup leader and a union leader is probably not the yeah, most different. complex and thought out. Different. Here's a fun one. 
The meal description includes deconstructed cannoli. You are from New York City. How did this happen? It takes the Dutch to do something like that. It also saves you about um, half the amount of money and time uh, and just kind of putting it on on the table uh, that way. I I, I have never, actually there is another restaurant here uh, in town who does deconstructed cannoli, but the chef is um, Dutch and married to an Italian and how he lets her get away with that, I don't know. (laughs) But I've lectured her on that topic. It it is a two-parter. The questioner says, joking aside, may we give a standing ovation to the staff? And at this point, I would like to to add, if if I could just by name recognize Anna, Michelle, Chris, Kathleen, and Mike. You made this night possible. Thank you so much. Thank you. With the rise of capitalism, there seems to be... No more food questions? No more food questions, at least not yet. With the rise of capitalism, there seems to be a correlative rise in materialism and alienation. Aren't free markets responsible for this? If no, what causes it? Uh, So is materialism and alienation? Uh, A correlative rise in materialism and alienation. Don't free markets cause that? No, I think, I think the wrong values cause that. And, and as, let's talk about materialism for, for a moment. Um, materialism, consumerism needs to be clearly distinguished from the belief in, a, in, um, in the goodness of the material world and the reality that we have to consume things to live. Now, that's just part and parcel of it. Do people become more superficial as they... Um, uh, have less want in their life? Maybe, maybe not. Because I've always thought that a, a, um, a case could be made for the, for the poor being even more materialistic than the rich simply because they have less material and they need to focus on obtaining physical things more than people who have a greater prosperity. Now, I think, uh, I think the decline in... Uh, moral values in virtue in society uh, happens without regard, well, maybe not without regard to economics, but not solely because of the economic status of of a particular person. I think uh, more prosperous societies have to be less concerned about the day-to-day sustenance and, uh, as a result, can produce uh, high culture, which... Uh, historically, uh, we've seen happen. Does this mean that we should be inattentive to the the um, allurements of freedom? Let's let's remember that what prosperity means, what wealth means, simply or more fundamentally, is a greater set of opportunities. Are we saying that people? are morally superior to the extent that they have less opportunities? Is that what we want to say? Um, I think there's a fiction that, that says something along the lines that the poor are, are saints 
and the rich are devils who demonize the rich and canonize the poor. Um, that's liberation theology. Um, the flip side of that, of course, is prosperity gospel, where the, the rich are canonized and the poor, poverty is an indication of a lack of God's blessing. I think that's a wrong way of doing moral theology. I think you have to ask a person's capacity, their knowledge, the strength of their will, their habituation, their capacity for repentance. Um, so I, I think it's, uh, I wish it was that easy, that all we needed to do was to reduce the level of prosperity and we would increase the level of sanctity in society. I, I don't think it works that way. I think where it does work that way is when we detach ourselves from material things. And by that I mean, I don't mean not have them necessarily, but have them as tools rather than goals. So um, I think this is part of the um, importance of what Acton is trying to bring to the table, that there, that there comes a great deal of responsibility with our options. And the moral virtues call upon us to detach from these things as the goal of our lives. And um, not to just decry uh, prosperity as though it, it automatically uh, destroys or corrodes um, virtue. It seems that you believe that we would be better if there had never better off if there had never been a minimum wage law or child labor laws. Can you explain how this would uh, how this would have um, made things better? Well, you know, first of all, uh, I, I think minimum wage laws are generally irrelevant if the wage, is, the minimum wage that's set, is below the market wage. Where they become um, Generally speaking, where they become deleterious is where they, they, they price the most vulnerable out of the market. Remember, the people who are being paid minimum wage are either people uh, who don't have a lot of skills yet or who, who aren't taking jobs full-time. They're taking it part-time. I, th I forget what the number is in terms of the number of people working in minimum wage positions. So um, I think that the freer the market the more opportunities exist. And those opportunities exist not just for what people are being paid to do the work, but there also are uh, formative opportunities so that the, the kid who is paid uh, the minimum wage or even below a minimum wage uh, to sweep out uh, the, the grocery store for a mom and pop um, is benefiting not just by the money he's taking home, but by the tutoring that he's getting to show up on time and to do a good job and have some supervising uh, uh, over the work that he's doing and habituate himself or herself to the work that he's doing. And I think when you uh, force businesses to uh, uh, find other ways to accomplish those goals, like all of the McDonald's uh, kiosks that are going uh, to technology. I'm not saying that they wouldn't have gone there sometimes, but I think it's, it's sped up the process. Uh, 
you're eliminating those opportunities for, for some people, retired people or part-time work people, to have those jobs. Uh, people generally don't stay uh, in minimum wage jobs. They, they generally progress out. And I think the freer the economy is, the more opportunities there are for people to make choices with regard to their lives. Uh, I, I think people look at the minimum wage and think only about that wage and not about what happens on the other side of that. That is, all of the things that don't come into play because uh, people have been priced out of the market. So, um, and with regard to child labor laws, uh, it's easy to um, simplify and caricature that. Um, but I do think, especially in, um, in developing societies, uh, it's very important for children to be able to do what they can do. And what we want to do in terms of child labor is not make artificial laws that um, uh, penalize people for hiring children, but make children economically irrelevant, by which I mean it doesn't pay for them to go to work. It pays for them to get an education, to be formed. And the way you do that is by raising the level of, of living of the society as a whole. And the way you do that, we know something about. And that is freer economies, lower tax environments, less regulatory environments. And um, uh, I mean, of course, when there are abusive situations, when people are slave laborers, laborers, then uh, that's, that's precisely the function of laws, to prevent that kind of thing from happening. Or when people are, are somehow duped into uh, situations, then, then law should be there to, to, to demand uh, justice. But the overall notion that, this, the, that we're going to solve uh, poverty by legislating it, I mean, they, they tried that in France with the 30-hour um, work week. And, you know, the mentality is, well, rather than having 40 hours, if we take 10 hours out of everybody's uh, work week, then we can give that to other people. So every four people, you can hire another person. But come on, do the math. Uh, eventually, uh, the whole thing collapses and becomes uh, uh, non-viable anymore. So... I think if you really want to help the most vulnerable, you have to have a society that's free and a society that's generous and um, um, uh, concerned about uh, the poor. How has the Vatican responded in all these years to your work? You know, people say the Vatican. I don't know what you mean by the Vatican. Probably a Baptist. Uh, I, I was, uh, no, be a journalist. They, they do it all the time. Let me, let me tell you a story once. And I, I won't mention the diocese. But one day, years and years ago, I was in, um, I happened to be in Rome, and I got a call from a journalist. And the, the journalist said, I want to talk to you about um, who you think the new uh, archbishop is going to be in this major metropolitan area. And I said, I think it's going to be so-and-so. And I named the name. And they said, OK, can we use your name? I said, oh, no, 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 no. I, I don't want my name associated with it. Well, how can we identify it? And I looked around me, and I realized I was standing inside the Vatican. 
I was right between St. Peter's Basilica and the Holy Office. I was going in, and it's a parking lot there. And I was standing in the parking lot taking the cell call. And I said, tell them that someone in the Vatican gave you that information. <laughs> she said, oh, that'll do. And wouldn't you know, that was the guy who was made the archbishop. <laughs> so, that, so when you say, what does the Vatican say? It depends on who. I mean, uh, over, if you're asking the question over 27 years, at first they didn't know us. Uh, then, uh, roughly in the late 90s and, and the 2000s, we got to know people uh, in the Vatican. Uh, um, in particular, uh, Cardinal Francis Xavier Nguyen Van Tuan. Uh, Cardinal Van Tuan should really go on a website and read his life. In fact, he was here in uh, Grand Rapids in, uh, I think it was 1996 or 1997, got him to speak at Calvin College with uh, the late Cardinal Dulles. Uh, who was then Father Dulles, with Chuck Colson. It's only an act and event where you could bring something like that together. Uh, and Cardinal Van Tuan, he, I met him when he was a, a bishop. He had been uh, appointed uh, the, uh, the um, they call it the coadjutor bishop of Saigon. Coadjutor means that he's put in the position, but they'll wait for the resignation of the present uh, Archbishop. Well, unfortunately, the, the Vatican, Pope Paul VI, appointed him about two weeks before Saigon fell to the communists. So when the communists came into power and they finally got around to finding this bishop who was from a northern city, Hui, uh, in Saigon, they said, uh, you go back to your diocese. He said, I can't. I, I, this is my diocese now. I don't have a diocese. No, 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 you go back. Uh, no, I won't. Well, they put him in jail. 13 years, nine of those years in solitary confinement. I met him in 1991 when he came out of uh, Vietnam. They let him out of prison. He came to Rome. He was the chaplain of a convent outside of Rome. And I met him and immediately was taken by his sanctity, his, his holiness, his, his um, love, even of those who put him in jail. Uh, there are books written about about this man. Uh, so we became friends. And over those years, from about 91 or 92 uh, to the year 2000, he was asked to give the papal retreat, uh, which was a great honor, the papal household retreat, and then was made a cardinal in 2002. Um, the same year, by the way, that Father Dulles, who had been my professor at Catholic University, was also made a cardinal in Rome. And then Cardinal Van Tuan became the president of the Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace, and um, that had been occupied for many years by a lot of socialists. But this man understood communism, but understood it not in an ideological way, but in a pastoral and a theological and a personal way. And. Uh, he began to engage us. Others then began to engage us. I can't talk about all of the details. So we, you know, we gained a reputation there now. And then, uh, of course, John Paul II was a great uh, anti-communist. Um, now we have a new pope. Uh, and people ask me about this pope. He has addressed a lot of our issues. 
uh, and uh, the thing I always say about Pope Francis is that I agree with Pope Francis when he says he doesn't understand economics. Um, he, let me be real clear, he's my pope. Uh, I believe that he's the successor of St. Peter. But Christ did not guarantee the church a charism that is a gift to speak authoritatively on economics or on science. On morals and faith, yes. And so uh, I feel very comfortable. I, I don't know whether the pope feels comfortable or not. I've met him once. I gave him poverty cure. I don't think he's watched it yet. Um, then we sent two other bishops at other times in with copies of Poverty Cure. He still hasn't watched it. Um, I, I know that we're on the outs with some people uh, around uh, the Pope and, and around various dicasteries. But we also know that uh, our approach is um, an acknowledged approach, that, that our view of economics is, is something that needs to be dealt with. Uh, we know that because we've heard people in the Roman Curia refer to people who have um, actinite uh, tendencies. Uh, so if that's, that, that's good. That's, you know, so uh, it's not the bureaucrats we're so concerned with as it is the pontifical universities, that is the future priests who are going to be teaching in other seminaries. And so we concentrate a lot of our um, energy there. Some of the work we do with people in uh, positions like that has to be very discreet given the nature of the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. Um, and there's things that I can't tell you about, but I did, I'd have to kill you. Um, uh, so when you ask what, uh, how does the Vatican view us, it depends on who you're talking to. If you're talking to um, you know, the shopkeeper at the rosary shop, uh, right outside St. Peter's Square. Um, I think she likes me because I get lots of rosaries from her and give them as gifts. Uh, if you ask the, the um, chancellor of uh, the Pontifical Academy of Sciences, um, Monsignor Marcello Sanchez, um, I don't think he'd care very much for me, we, we had a nice exchange, which is somewhere. It was reported in the press, and we caught it on tape and had a nice little back and forth at a conference we invited him to speak at. Uh, and we're just going to keep doing that kind of stuff. You know, it's really wonderful when if I speak now as a priest, uh, when you don't have any ambition to become a bishop. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I just want to be pastor of my parish. That's all I want to do. Thank you very much. And somehow I know I'll never become a bishop. Besides, so I tell my tailor, when I was in Rome, the tailor was fitting me. He said, you know, um, he said, I think you have the shape of a monsignor. <laughs> and I said, um, Marco, I'm going for cardinal. <laughs> <clears throat> I'd look white, good and white, don't you think? <laughs> Is it true that you wrote a script for a TV series that would be a West Wing about the Vatican? Yes. Uh, I, I actually didn't write it. I created the idea and hired, Division of Labor here, uh, hired uh, um, a gentleman. We created a, um, uh, a production company. Uh, it's an idea that I'd had for a long time, and so I finally 
wrote a treatment and then uh, had it around for a while. And to make a long story short, we hired Ron Bass. Ron Bass, a fascinating guy. I really enjoy him. He uh, won the Academy Award for the screenplay for Rain Man. He also did uh, Joy Luck Club, uh, My Best Friend's Wedding. Uh, if you Google Ron Bass with double S, uh, you'll see he's probably the most in-demand scriptwriter in Hollywood. Ron is uh, Jewish, agnostic if not atheist, depends on the day of the week. Uh, and I'm glad to say he did not support Hillary Clinton for president. He was a Bernie Sanders advocate. <laughs> and uh, we are on opposite sides of all kinds of issues, but he's a good writer. <laughs> and he's a respectful person uh, whom I respect, who respects me, and we go around about issues, and so we have the script. Uh, we have a projection of uh, two, two um, uh, seasons so far, and even into the third. And what I want to do is bring a lot of the issues that we talk about here into a dramatic form, not into a didactic form. But I so admired the way the writers of The West Wing insinuated their left wing ideas into the scripts. I mean, you know, Hollywood does this all the time. Sometimes it does it well, and sometimes it doesn't do it well. Um, and all I'm asking for is not to insinuate right-wing ideas, but just to get us a place at the table. Like, by the way, we exist too, even in the Catholic Church. And um, so there, there's some really interesting scenarios and characters and uh, things. One of the things we've written in is... Um, the Pope is going to intervene into a, um, a dispute over, um, uh, over the confiscation of private property to be used for business uh, in Los Angeles. So the Pope calls the mayor, and uh, maybe I shouldn't be talking about this stuff. Well, it's not an Acton project. It's, oh, it's, oh, yes. It's separate well, for you. It's right. separate, you know, but, I, but no, it's not about talking right. about that, but I don't want to compromise the script. Okay. Um, Forget what I just said. This was all under the seal of the confession. Right. Here's our last question. Yes. From where do you draw your happiness and enormous life strength? I suppose, I suppose from my family. I mean, I've always been pretty optimistic uh, in general. I suppose it's the southern Italian blood, you know? I mean, when you live, when you have the DNA from such a beautiful area of the world, uh, what's not to be optimistic about? Good food, good wine, sunshine, beautiful coast. Um, I don't know. Uh, I really don't know. I, I, um, is that to say that our family had it easy or, or um, there was a, an enormous work ethic on the part of both my parents? So um, I have my dark moments. You know, I, I get sad sometimes. And, uh, but it's been just such a joy, uh, both the Institute and in parallel. You know, I'm 66, so I'm, I'm looking to when the time that I'll relinquish certain responsibilities and stuff. Uh, and you know, you come to the end of a career at some point. I'm not going anywhere. Just let my enemies know that. I'm not going anywhere yet. <laughs> Um, 
but uh, I'm, I'm at a point in my life where things are clicking. My parish is going great guns. The school is going great guns. The institute has never been more vibrant and um, more effective. And I've lost a ton of weight, as some of you may remember from years past. Uh, I'm healthy. I work out. Um, and I've got good friends. And I've got the greatest little dog in the world who has saved me thousands of dollars in therapy costs. <laughs> so um, I, I know, maybe. And uh, I'm sorry. I know Jesus Christ is my Savior. By the way. (laughs) Father Robert, thank you for this evening and thank you for the activities. Thank you. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of. If you're familiar with our past content or have attended an Acton event and would like to see it in a future episode, you can email us at producer at Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Gabriel Jaja.